You're listening to Policy Speaking, and I'm your host, Edward Greenspot, President and CEO of the Public Policy Forum, and thank you for tuning in. When Canadians talk about space, their first thought may turn to the ageless McGill drama graduate, William Shatner, the Star Trek captain for whom space was the final frontier, which he proved again in weeks. And then there is our real space economy, which is worth hundreds of billions of dollars worldwide. And Canada remains, as it always has been, a big player. Today, I'll be joined by two of the most well-positioned people on that topic. Dan Goldberg, the CEO of Telesat, a little-known and long-lasting Canadian success story. And the Honorable Nav Deep Baines, the former Minister of Innovation, Science, and Economic Development. But first, we start with Today in Politics with the editor of PPF Media, Katie Davey. Hello, Katie. Hi, Ed. I think we're going to start today with a skill testing question. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, I think uh, many Canadians learned a new letter of the Greek alphabet over the weekend. So I wondered if, uh, if you know the full Greek alphabet. No, the Greek alphabet tends to be a bit Greek to me, so I'm, I'm going to have to expose my ignorance. I have not read any of the great um, Greek philosophers in their original language. That would be very challenging. I mean, I've been confused, you know, during the pandemic, why we haven't gone from, you know, alpha to alpha plus or beta to beta plus, because of course... My exposure to the Greek alphabet is from Brave New World. <laughs> they stop at Epsilon. So again, I too learned a new, a new letter this past weekend, the Omicron, if I'm pronouncing that correct, which is the latest variant we're facing. It seems that this variant was rolling out quite quickly. Uh, again, I think I heard of it only maybe on Friday, and it seems to be really proliferating conversation. So what, what are your thoughts on on how fast it's moving? You know, are, did you expect this? Have we always just expected another variant? Well, I don't want to profess any expertise. I'm like all other Canadians where I have developed myself into an epidemiologist and, and a deep scientist in no time at all without much education. But truthfully, of course, I have uh, a tremendous respect for the work that has been done by the real experts. And we all need to have have some expertise. Uh, interestingly, I had my booster shot on the weekend. Uh, so just in time, I guess, to, I hope up my resistance to anything new, but, you know, maybe I will need a new booster soon enough. So, you know, what can you say other than I think we've been warned all along that there will be new variants. I think we've been warned all along that if we uh, don't treat this as a whole world issue, that those of us who are living in developed countries where there is uh, has been more vaccine will get bit in the backside by the reality that infection travels and it travels very quickly and you can't wall yourself off. That's just a pipe dream. So I think it reminds us of some of the things. And I think, you know, for me, I'd say there's two other major factors that reminds me of. One is that um, thank goodness for science, thank goodness for health science, thank goodness we have capacity with which to address this, even if we need to be keeping playing catch-up, which is the nature of the game. But this is not the Black Plague, where not only could we not figure out what it was, but defenses were, uh, the only defenses were to get herd mentality through mass death. 
And the other thing, of course, is, you know, because we're interested here in policy, we're interested in government, this has the danger of throwing society off course again and our societies off course. I think there's lockdown fatigue. We're approaching Christmas and people want to go shopping and people want to celebrate with their families and they're very tired almost two years into this. So I think that's uh, an issue. And I think fiscal capacity is an issue. Will we have to keep more powder dry? How about you? You know, what's been rolling through your head all weekend long? Yeah, well, a lot to unpack there. I mean, I want to come back to kind of the, the whole world response in a second. But I think for me, just to your point about progress and how much we have really made in the last year, um, it wasn't this weekend necessarily, but I guess last weekend, I was so... I guess, hardened to see that in Canada, you know, we announced the approval of the vaccine for five to 11 year olds. And at the same time, that same day, we also announced that there would be enough uh, vaccines for every five to 11 year old in the country within 48 hours, which is obviously a very stark difference in procurement and rollout than we than we saw in you know January, February, March, really the whole first of the year. So I think that obviously tells us that We're getting much more sophisticated, as you say, but from the policy perspective, we've definitely figured some things out. I think, obviously, there are still some pain points with rollout, but by and large, the 5 to 11-year-old rollout seems to have been much smoother, which I think, again, here in Canada is something that really gives me some hope that as things do continue to shift, as you say, as variants continue and as as the virus evolves, we'll be able to hopefully respond quite a bit quicker. But that also is among the vaccine willing group, right? And I think there is a question to to your point around fatigue. Where is the fatigue going to start on that side of things too? I think lockdown for sure. So, you know, that's kind of been rolling around in my mind. Well, if I just may, you know, know, that raises a couple issues. I know you want to go back to the one world part of this. So let's, let's go there in a second. I had my booster shot at my local pharmacy on the weekend, and uh, it was very uplifting to see all the uh, brave 5 to 11-year-olds because I I saw some of them resist going into the cubicle to get their shot, but they all came out um, happy and smiling and without any incident. So the fact that we are protecting our youngest is very satisfying. And the fact that we're on a learning curve in this way, in terms of the creation of vaccine, the distribution of vaccine, the application of vaccine, it's also good. Unfortunately, of course, the infection's on a learning curve too, and that's the way it's going to be. And it seems to me that let's also come back in a moment to talk about the fatigue factor and where where the tension lines will be. But it it certainly seems to me that we have to move from a mentality that we will defeat this virus to a mentality of how we will cope with and be resilient with this virus and the way that in some ways and how it was in post-1919 with the flu. Yeah, I think that's right. And again, I think tying some of that together, you know, obviously as, as this conversation comes up around a new variant, so too does the question around, yeah, mutation and actually, again, vaccination rates across the globe. And we kind of want to say we're all in this together, but that's really not the case. We have seen the fracturing and we have seen many countries, especially in the global south and otherwise, that are not at the same vaccine rates. A lot of this has to do, you know, in my 
again, my non-expert opinion, or at least calls are being made again for the IP to be loosened, right? So I think that's another question here. We're seeing here in Canada, we might think there are only, I guess, what, four vaccines. That's not the case. There are actually many more across the globe. And in the Western world, we are not recognizing, we're just starting, frankly, to recognize some vaccines from other countries. But at the same time, we're also not making available the IP for countries to be manufacturing their own vaccines. And other countries are actually paying quite a lot more for vaccines than, than we have. And I think that is a fundamental problem and one in which why we are continuing to see mutations, right? Again, as, as you kind of said off the top, we're not, we're not experts here. Um, so this is, you know, again, not my scientific uh, opinion, but it's from kind of a policy perspective, it seems that these are persisting issues and we're going to continue to see these issues until we do actually start taking a kind of one globe approach. Yeah, well, I agree with you on the one globe approach, and I agree with you when when you say loosening IP. I think I agree. I, I, it's a matter of it's always been a very delicate question of when you loosen. I think there's two delicate questions here that um, that intersect. One is that all politics is local or at the very least national, and in the democracies, people will get reelected by their governments, and if their governments protect citizens of other countries before they protect the citizens of their country, there'll probably be a political price to pay, even though that, you know, there's no moral basis for that, there's no ethical basis uh, for that, but that is the reality. And then the other, you know, the other huge factor is where are the economic incentives? So a system works on, we're getting vaccines very quickly, we're getting Frankly, pharmaceutical industries, which has not necessarily been the most popular industry over many years with people, but it's um, it's and the new biologic industries around it are doing what we need them to do. They're coming through with uh, with solutions. So, how much is the reward system important to getting the result? I mean, historically, it's very important. And then, when can you lose? This has always been an issue. When can you know, when does license come off and, and generics can have their own? And it, certainly in the AIDS epidemic, there was a point where drugs were open up and made uh, and made freely available because the danger to people in around the world was so grave. So I think that's a, that's a model. It's just um, the devils in the details of the when and the how. The what is absolutely necessary because uh, it's an interconnected world. Yeah, well, and that's right. I mean, the when and the how, I think uh, to your point, you know, the, the when was probably a year ago, right? And so would would there be an impact now? But I do think the other pieces, you know, we know so much scientific research also happens in, in existing publicly subsidized institutions, right? In our universities, et cetera. So, you know, I think the argument of incentivizing the private sector to develop vaccines falls a bit weak on me because they're already as an industry quite heavily subsidized and also so much research happens at, at the university level and other research institutions. And so in some ways, you know, my question is how, how is that made readily available more globally when it's already being uh, subsidized? Again, that's a bit different here in Canada and, and some other places because we do, you know, there's a lot of public money in those institutions. But yeah, again, I, I just think it's a, it's an important question for us to ask, especially as we know, and we're seeing that there's as you say, we're going to have to live with this virus. We're not going to eradicate it. So I hope, you know, smarter people than me are thinking about these questions and and trying to understand how best move forward so that we can get back to a somewhat 
Yeah. Well, Katie, I find it hard to believe that there's smarter people than you who are thinking these questions, uh, but they may be better informed on this particular yes. subject. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and I'm sure we're going to see some extraordinary economics research come out at various mm. points about pricing, about profits, about incentivizing, about you know where the sweet spot is for ensuring that the public is well served in its pocketbook in its safety in its innovation you know all of those uh, all of those aspects and just as the last word i used was innovation which uh, was not on purpose i think that soon we're going to have a discussion here around space as we said in the intro and uh, and i hope that we don't all have to go to space colonies to get away from us uh, eventually that's uh, uh, that's what I hope. You're foreshadowing a bit. Folks will have to listen all the way through to the interview to hear if our two guests indeed want to escape to a space colony or not. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, maybe, maybe maybe we should, you know, uh, get a question out there and get people to answer that, particularly after they hear this or after they saw William Shatner rhapsodize about his uh, his trip into uh, into space. Not the upper, upper atmosphere, but up to the point, I think, of, of weightlessness as well. So. Yeah. No, I love that. Yeah, folks uh, folks want to go to space, uh, tweet at us and tell us why or why not. Let's uh, say something about our sponsor for, uh, for a moment of policy speaking, and it sort of fits in with our conversation quite closely. Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has demonstrated how important, strong, and resilient healthcare is to all Canadians and just how stressed our system can become in many parts of the country. The Public Policy Forum being as we are the think tank about tomorrow, is keen to keep a touch on emerging issues of relevance uh, to Canadians. And, and what we've been talking about is clearly one of them, those issues where the trajectory has been changed, the urgency has become greater. Our podcast sponsor, Johnson Johnson, also knows how critical it is to provide strong healthcare services to Canadians backed up by health science. And we thank them for their support for policy speaking. And we wish them and everyone else good haste in helping uh, find solutions to this ever-evolving challenge. And with that, I'm pleased to introduce our guest today. I'm pleased to introduce our guest today. The Honorable Navdeep Baines is Vice Chair, Global Investment Banking at CIBC, and of course, formerly the Minister of Innovation, Science, and Economic Development for Canada. And Daniel Goldberg is the President and Chief Executive of Telesat, a role he's held since 2006. And prior to joining Telesat, Dan was um, Chief Executive Officer of SES New Sky, so he has a lot of experience in this business. Welcome to you both. Well, thanks very much for having us, Ed. Indeed, thanks, Ed. A pleasure to have you both and a really interesting and important uh, subject at this juncture. So, now let's just start uh, with a, a kind of, you know, pull back the camera lens for half a moment here and just tell us why is space so important? How important was it to you as minister and how important is it going to be to Canada? Look, we're a space-faring nation, and it's important to remember that. We were one of the first three to launch satellites into space in terms of just taking on a leadership role when it comes to satellite technology. This was before I was born in 1962 with the Alouette. So, Ed, you may recall, but this was a big deal. 
And uh, since then, you know, we've had a long and proud history of the Canada arm and robotics. And for me, when I came on as, as a minister, I was very excited about this portfolio and being the head of the Canadian Space Agency and the minister responsible for it because it was an important part of our economy. And it still is. Over 10,000 Canadians are employed in the space sector. It represents uh, over $2 billion worth of economic activity. And it's one of the most intensive industries when it comes to research and development, an area where Canada was falling behind some of the other OECD countries. So when we think about our government's industrial plan, the innovation and skills plan, space was a critical part of it. And also it was just a lot of fun. I got to hang out with astronauts and got to learn about cool technologies. So from a personal curiosity perspective, it was interesting to me. But I think in terms of our government's overall economic agenda, it was important as well. And it had been neglected uh, to be candid. And so I was glad that I was able to come on board and, and uh, really convince my cabinet colleagues for some additional investments from the government perspective. And I'll explain why that's important later on. Okay, well, I'm going to let go by the idea that before you were born, but Ed, you will remember it. So uh, <laughs> uh, we'll let that that pass. But certainly, you know, there's a special romance to space, and we've all been brought up on, uh, you know, we remember the space race, and we've seen the movies, and we've read the right stuff, and there is something special uh, here. Dan, tell us that has been in the space game for decades now, in one way or another. And now the configuration is changing. You've just listed the company as a, as a public company in, uh, in New York or Toronto. Just to explain to us how the world, obviously there's a lot of nuance to this, but again, maybe just to, to begin with, you know, what are the basic strategic changes that are happening out there that you're responding to? Oh, it's a great question, Ed. It's a, it's a big question too. I'll have to start with kind of a big step back and agree with some of well, all of what Nav said, but in particular, Nav's observation that from the start of you know the dawn of the space age, Canada was a player and an important player. And tell us that was part of that, but but there were certainly lots of other players in Canada that were really key contributors to developing not just the industry here in this country, but really playing key roles on, on the world stage. And so, you know, over the decades, and tell us that's been around for 52 years, it's probably good to think about space in a few different kind of buckets. One is space exploration. Canada's been a leader there, and now I've talked about astronauts, and, and Canada's, yeah, been very active there. There's satellite communications, which is where Telesat's really been a world leader, you know, using satellites in space to distribute video and telephone calls and, and really important in a great big country like Canada, where it's hard to connect such a large geographic space in the absence of using satellites. And, and then probably the other bucket I'd note is Earth observation. So satellites that are in space taking pictures of the Earth and monitoring Earth. And, and this has always been important, and it's probably increasingly important in an era of climate change. So, but, but now to your question, and I'm more expert in satellite communications than, than anything else, we have seen an evolution. And I, I'd say that for probably the past three decades, our industry is, has probably grown the most around uh, distributing video services. So, you know, here in Canada, that would be 
Bell TV, Shaw Direct, helping Canadians, no matter where they are, receive hundreds and hundreds of high-quality video channels and whatnot, that's probably the area that's facing the most disruption right now. And that's all because of the internet, which is disrupting a lot of industries. So, And yet, maybe paradoxically, that's the biggest opportunity for the space sector too, is providing broadband connectivity. Well, we'll come back to you for a moment on on broadband connectivity and on the so-called low-Earth orbiting satellites that are central to your strategy. But, but now, if I, let me come back to you on broadband. Obviously, this was a big theme. It was a big theme. Getting the internet out was a big theme for your predecessors, but the world in which we live now and broadband access being a critical, we're just, how are we doing on that? Candidly, we can do better. If you look at connectivity, the issue is really in rural and remote Canada where only 50% of our population has high-speed internet connectivity. So they're connected, but it's not high-speed internet connectivity. And particularly some of those remote regions where we know the fiber uh, solution is not going to work, this is where Dan's uh, leadership and low-Earth orbit satellites comes into play because it not only deals with speed, but the latency issue as well. And so if you look at space and the importance of satellites and the work that Dan was talking about, particularly around connectivity, The digital divide was exposed during the pandemic, and people that live in rural communities can work from there properly, can learn online, can shop online, can do commerce online. And so it was a real challenge for uh, me as a minister. And we've made progress. We've introduced initiatives. We've introduced tax policies to incentivize the telecommunication companies. But it's technologies like Leo's that I think are going to really help us accelerate the ability to reach some of those remote communities in a meaningful way. So that way, every Canadian is connected with high-speed internet connectivity. But we're still far away from that. We're at 50%, and we, we have, uh, I think, the next the ambition from the government, and my understanding is to be able to do that in the next four to five years. And I think that's critical as people talk about building back better. So, Dan, this is, you know, I guess, a social need hitting a business opportunity, or a business opportunity hitting a social need, I guess, is, uh, is, is a better way to put it. So... Walk us through what are Leos, how they change the world. I mean, it kind of feels that there's a there's a great urgency out there. You know, we're kind of like it seem it feels like we're in a hurry up offense now. So, what is going on, and then how are we meeting that? Going to meet that need? Let's talk technology for a minute. So, so Leo stands for low Earth orbit, and low Earth orbit refers to uh, probably somewhere b- between. 500 kilometers and 1,500 kilometers above Earth. So it's an object that's that's orbiting Earth, kind of you know in that in that range. And, and just for a moment, how would that compare with uh, geostationary? Uh, yeah, so uh, so geostationary satellites, which is sort of the the predominant technology today, providing these video communication services and broadband services. That's all the way up at 36,000 kilometers. So it's you know. 36 times higher above the earth. Now, there are advantages to geo. The the one big advantage to geo is that an object 36,000 kilometers above the earth orbits the earth at the same rate that the earth turns. This was kind of postulated by Arthur C. Clarke at the time. And what what he foresaw was that you could have an object 36,000 kilometers above the earth. It looks stationary from a point on the earth. That's why they're called geostationary. And so all those little antennas that you see on people's homes and cottages, again, here in Canada, that's 
a Bell TV dish or a Star Choice or Shaw Direct dish. They're not moving, right? You just point them to the sky and they're receiving their signal from this geostationary satellite that is orbiting the Earth at the same rate that the Earth is turning. Okay, so why now do we want to move to the low Earth uh, orbiting? And so, your point, why would we want to move? Implicit in that is, gee, there's some great things associated with having things in geostationary. And then the big thing there is the simplicity of the antenna on Earth. It doesn't have to be very sophisticated. It doesn't have to track this object in space. The problem with geostationary is what Nav referred to as latency. It takes quite some time. Now, quite some time is a second, but it takes a second for a signal to go from the Earth to 36,000 kilometers in space and bounce off the satellite and come back down to Earth. Well, it doesn't sound like a whole lot a second, but the way the internet works and have this massive societal need that you mentioned, Ed, to bring broadband connectivity to everybody, that second, that delay, the signal latency makes for a very suboptimal broadband experience for the user. It's slow. It means that uh, encrypted services, which are, you know, the way the internet works is you send a little data, it's acknowledged. You send more data, that gets acknowledged. So, So there's a lot of back and forth with the internet. When you introduce a second of latency, a second of delay, you're introducing a lot of delay into that link. And that means for some encrypted applications, all these security handshakes that take place, oftentimes it can't even be supported over a high latency link. And so if you want to deliver a fast, high throughput, affordable broadband service to everyone on earth, no matter where they live, you can't do that from geo. You literally, it's physics. You have to get the satellite closer to Earth. So the amount of time it takes to go from the Earth to the satellite and back again is very, very small. And so I mentioned it takes a second for a satellite up in geo. For the satellites in LEO, it's a fraction of that. It's like, you know, 25 milliseconds. It's like fiber speeds. And that's Kind of the big opportunity, that's why Telesat is embarking on this very big project that we're embarking on. And it's why some of our our big competitors are are doing the same. There's a big opportunity there. So let's come back to that for a second. But if I could just stay with latency for half a second. Half a second, that's funny, Ed. (laughs) (laughs) Every pun intended with that. Every pun intended with that. Perhaps a full second, as you said, uh, (laughs) there and back. As a layperson, I wonder... Why does that matter to the ability to get it to remote locations on the one hand? On the other hand, I can see that it should really matter to certain applications as we move more into a 5G world. If you're doing a remote operation on me, I don't want you to be off by a second. So I just want to understand the applications, how it changes life for people like me. Yeah, if I can, just on that, uh, before Dan speaks to the technical aspect of it, from a government perspective, we were very excited and still are about the deployment of Spectrum to enhance 5G capabilities. And to your point, Ed, the issue around latency deals with that issue. So connected devices and 5G are going to be critical for every aspect, especially for remote medicine 
and for dealing with remote communities and providing them with proper healthcare services. So if you're doing surgery on someone and you don't have a Leo capability or not dealing with that latency issue, you cannot perform that surgery. So and in this case, it's a life or death issue. And so that's why from our perspective, this solution has a lot of potential and, and Dan's vision around, and he's being modest, but the technology itself, if you compare it to global competitors, as he alluded to, it's far superior. And I think for a country as vast as Canada, for a country that's dealing with remote populations that will have difficulties to be flown in at the appropriate time for proper medical health services, dealing with this latency issue can fundamentally change the game when it comes to providing life-saving healthcare services. Yeah, I, I strongly agree with that. And for sure, there are certain applications like remote surgery that that cannot tolerate delay in terms of signal transmission. It's it's life or death, but it's it's even you know much more arcane. It's how long does it take your web page to load? It's if you're a student and you're participating in an online class and the professor is asking a question or you have a question, the person who has a low latency link, probably, you know, in some city is always going to be able to get there first. They're, they're going to be able to make their points first. Their questions are going to get answered first. It puts everybody at a disadvantage. And then for these encrypted applications, and by the way, everything's getting encrypted. You want to buy something on the internet. You want to download records that have privacy concerns, which is almost everything today. Government is increasingly pushing things into the cloud. Well, the cloud requires a low latency. It's an inherently kind of low latency uh, medium. But back to your question, Ed, well, why talk to me about rural and remote? We can provide broadband connectivity like we're doing today from geo, from geostationary satellites. So, and this is what Nav was saying, Kind of everyone's connected, but that's not what it's all about. If I'm providing somebody a suboptimal connection, it's slower, it's less secure, it's a lot more expensive. It's better than nothing, but you are reinforcing this kind of two-tier society that, that, that we're struggling with, you know, without the, you know, assistance of further prejudicing, further burdening people in rural and remote communities. And so what's powerful about Leo is it eliminates the latency issue. The only way you can solve the latency issue in space, back to the physics, is just get the satellites closer to Earth. Our vision of Leo, it is fundamentally a rural and remote play. We're not trying to displace fiber where fiber makes sense. Where fiber makes sense is in geographic areas that have higher population density. It goes back to economics. Okay, I'm going to come back to Nav in a second, but I just want to understand from a Telsat point of view how huge an undertaking this is. You, you know, you've raised some money from the government, you've raised some money from private sources, large sums of money, a lot of capital, and I don't even know if you're at all the capital you need. So what kind of undertaking? How many rockets are going up? Where are they going up from? Yeah, so I'll, I'll talk about our project. And again, we're not the only company that has identified this as a, a very promising opportunity. For us, we're going to start with 298 satellites. They're very powerful, very advanced satellites. These aren't 
little kind of throwaway satellites that frankly some others are putting up there. These are advanced satellites and I'm proud to say they're going to be built in Canada. They're going to be assembled in Quebec. We're working with other good, strong Canadian partners that that are going to help us with this. So there are about 298 satellites that are in a very thoughtful, intelligent orbital architecture. We're going to have about 220 satellites orbiting the Earth in kind of an equatorial way. So if you picture the Earth and and you picture it's almost like an atom with electrons going around it, we're going to have 220 electrons spinning around the Earth, kind of around the equator, but but in various planes, and then about another 78 satellites in a polar orbit. And that's going to allow us to serve the far north of Canada. Incredibly, all of these satellites will have optical links, so they're able to talk to each other in space. So what we've done by doing that, we have a big space-based, fully meshed IP network capable of providing terabits of capacity anywhere on Earth and doing it in a way that's very flexible and very dynamic. We're working with another great Canadian company, MDA, the old McDonald Detweiler, that's going to be building the antennas that go on these 298 satellites that allow us to dynamically change our coverage on the earth. So so it's a very powerful, very flexible network. The total cost of this project in Canadian dollars is north of six and a half billion Canadian dollars. So yes, it's the biggest space project in Telesat's history, but it's the biggest space project in Canada's history. I want to come back. I want to ask competitors, but just over how long a period does it take to uh, get 298 satellites built, ready, and in orbit? It's going to take about four years. We'll be launching the first satellites in probably about two and a half years' time. And then, to your point, we're going to need a lot of rockets. These rockets, uh, the size of these satellites, again, I mentioned they're pretty big. Satellites will be able to put 16 of these satellites on a single conventional rocket, the kind of rockets that we use to launch our last geostationary satellites. There are newer rockets that are coming out that are going to allow us to about double the number of satellites that we can launch, but that's what it looks like. Okay, so every few months we're going to get to see uh, this happen. Nav, when you hear McDonald Detweiler, I, I know that there's a smile on your face. It seems to me there's two levels of competitiveness here that would matter to a lot. One is, you know, making sure there's a Canadian industry part. The other is the competitiveness that comes to, I guess, everybody through 5G. So maybe you could walk us through, again, particularly when you were in government, but now in finance, what that opportunity looked like and what perhaps missing out on that opportunity would have looked like. Yeah, it's, it's a great question, Ed. And I just want to go back to the comments that Dan made. You know, we all get excited about the Jeff Bezos or the Elon Musks or the Richard Bransons, but we've got a Dan Goldberg here with this kind of ambition in Canada. We've got to be celebrating that more. So I just want to highlight that, that we've got this Canadian technology with global ambition, with a lot of capital uh, and the government supporting it. So it's very exciting. And I just want to underscore that because I think it's so easy to highlight these success stories outside of Canada. And we we have this incredible story here unfolding in Canada. So I think this, hopefully people listening to this will share this story with their family and friends. But well, Matt, Matt, of, thank you for that. Yeah, no, it's the truth. And you know, I've spoken to you about this as well. I, I mean, uh, very fortunate to be in the position that I was to work alongside with you to help this initiative grow. 
But I would say to um, the point that Ed made with regard to the overall global competitiveness, like the space economy is growing and it's going to triple in size in the next 20 years. So that means there's a lot of private capital that's going to come in now above and beyond what governments are doing. We're seeing that on full display with a lot of these space flights with individuals and tourists going on them. But what's exciting for me is Canada's well positioned. As I said before, we're a spacefaring nation. So we have this long and proud history. So the two areas where Canada is well positioned is in the area that Dan talked about, which is communication satellites. So we start from the Alouette and continue to see that journey where we're really building on our previous success stories, the, the know-how, the technology, and the global reputation. Uh, the other area is robotics and AI. And if you look at the Canada arm, we were very strategic in making sure we were the first country to sign up with the Americans and NASA to be a strategic partner uh, in the Lunar Gateway Initiative. And this allows us to now continue to build on the robotics technology and also connect AI, because this is about deep space exploration where you're not going to have astronauts orbiting for an extended period of time. So you need AI and you need robotics to conduct some of the, the research that would be taking place and doing the analysis. And so this is, again, Canada was well positioned. We, as uh, when I was the minister, put forward a Canadian AI strategy. We have household names like Yashua Bengio and Rick Sun and Jeffrey Hinton and so many more since then that have come forward and really propelled AI and the reputation of AI in Canada. So all that's coming together in Canada, again, can carve out a unique value proposition to differentiate itself by combining robotics and AI to build the Canada Arm 3. So these are two areas. And the third one, of course, being Earth Observation, where Canada has a long and proud history. And in this very competitive space now, remember, we're dealing with 90 countries. In the 1980s, there's only 15 of us, right? And now it's over 90 countries that are in the space economy. So it's a very competitive space. It's going to be well over $2 trillion 20 years from now. So a lot of money, bigger than the Canadian economy. And I think Canada is well positioned because we have a space strategy. We have a space program. We have uh, space companies like Telesat and MDA. And even companies like GHG Sat that I spoke with recently in my capacity at CIBC when we were talking about companies that can help deal with climate change. And this is a great Canadian success story, again, that's got proprietary satellite technology that can, at a firm level, at an industry level, figure out how much G, uh, CO2 or carbon is being emitted. And that's very important as we're trying to bring more accountability and transparency when it comes to the climate change conversation. So all that to say, it's an exciting space. And by the way, aside from all this, there's so many applications on Earth that these space investments have benefited us uh, for a number of years, and I can speak to that later on as well. Well, well, I think that's a really telling point that I'm learning through here is that I think when people think about space, they think about space ap- uh, exploration, which is obviously, as you guys have said, part of the uh, of the equation. But the application of space on Earth is uh, from climate change, from, as you say, the challenge of Canada has always been its size and how do we get around it and how do we communicate. Uh, transportation and communication has always been so central. Having said that, And Dan, I'm going back to you. Nav was uh, very generous in putting you in the company as I'm, as, as I think you belong because you are a builder of this new world with, uh, with the likes of Richard Branson and Elon Musk and, uh, and Jeff Bezos. Those are going to be your competitors here. You're competing against the big, big players. Musk Starlink already has, uh, has satellites up there. So. 
what's that going to be like? Are they going to come into into your backyard? Well, they're coming into Canada. The Musk Initiative is called Starlink, part of Elon's company SpaceX, and and they're they've been authorized to come in and provide service in Canada, and authorized by by the government of Canada. So they've they've created the competition for you. Yeah, full disclosure, I was the minister that had the approved that. And and I remember when I ran into Danny and he said, I love it. Competition is great. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think that just put it that's my point. Like it's not like we're shying away from Telesat being a global competitor. This is about saying bring it. And that's where I think again, that level of ambition and the level of competition will demonstrate how impressive this technology is. None, well, nonetheless, right. Dan, you have to compete with people who have an awful lot of capital at their disposal. So I just want to understand so, how you position yourself there. Yeah, so a couple of things about that. And, and Navdeep is exactly right. We didn't oppose SpaceX coming into Canada. The, this market for satellite services has been open for decades. Telesat is providing satellite services in almost every country around the world. We do it here in Canada, but we do it all over the world. So we need open markets. Uh, it would have felt pretty hypocritical for us to pound down the doors around the world trying to open markets and then insisting that our market be somehow, you know, sheltered from competition. But a couple of things about our plan and why we're confident that that we're going to be successful. One, to some extent, we're focusing on a little bit different markets. Starlink, the Amazon initiative, which is called Kuiper, first and foremost, They're trying to provide broadband connectivity directly to consumers. And so if I'm in a rural, remote part of Canada and I don't have good broadband connectivity, they will be an option. I can order a broadband service directly from them and they'll send me a little dish that I can try to install, you know, at my house. That's not Telesat's focus. Our focus, and we've been doing this for decades now, we provide service to enterprises. We provide service to mobile network operators and ISPs. We provide service to energy companies, to aeronautical companies. We provide broadband to, to airplanes, folks like Air Canada. And we provide broadband to ships, to the maritime industry. And we provide satellite services to governments. That's going to continue to be our focus. And and we think that's probably a better way to connect the folks that aren't connected today. Because the reality is Bell, Rogers, they're in these remote markets. What they need, though, in order to provide a better broadband service is a better, faster, cheaper broadband pipe coming to these remote communities. And then they'll use wireless technology, that can be 5G, that can be LTE, they'll use that technology to do that last mile to connect the consumer. So that, that's what our focus is. And we built this, we've designed this multi-billion low Earth orbit satellite constellation to serve those enterprise users. We think that our system is going to have some cost and performance advantages for those enterprise users. So that's the first point. The other point is, so the point Nav was making, it's a huge market. It's, you know, a trillion dollar market. We believe that based on our market research out in, you know, 2025, when we're going to get going, the market, just our adjustable market, it's like half a trillion dollars. 
It's huge. We think it's two orders of magnitude larger than the market that we're able to address with our geostationary satellites. So we think we can be massively successful, but so can Elon, so can Amazon, so can others. And that's fine. And and that's, look, we're big believers that competition brings good things, brings lower prices, it brings more innovation, it brings better service to the consumers of these services. We've been competing in a very, very competitive market for some decades now. And that's what the future looks like too. And that's why we've had to innovate and make these big investments. And I also believe it's a public-private partnership model that's on full display. To Dan's point, the technology is amazing. The market is there. But the government, when I was minister in particular, worked very closely with Dan on early stages to de-risk some of the R&D that was required and then said, look, we also want to be a customer. If we believe in this company, if we believe in the technology, we also have to demonstrate when Dan goes abroad and says, yes, I'm doing business with the government of Canada, that opens more doors. And then recently, uh, this is not under my tenure, but Dan was able to secure some additional financing to strengthen his balance sheet so he can go out there in the market and raise additional capital. All that to say is this is a public-private model and it's part of the government's industrial policy. This is how you leverage and de-risk R&D. This is how you use procurement and this is how you support Canadian companies to become global champions. You've got to be strategic. You've got to find the areas that you do well in. And that's, I think, another way to be able to compete with the Jeff Bezos and the Elon Musks, uh, et cetera, because, uh, because of this public-private partnership. Yeah, well, and, I, and, and, and I'm sorry, I just I want to jump in and reinforce something that Nav said. And, and listen, we're all for open markets. And, and Nav was right when he was minister to authorize SpaceX to come in and to compete in Canada. But make no mistake about it. SpaceX is receiving billions and billions and billions of dollars of support from the U.S. government, developing rockets, R&D funding. It's just immense. And so it's great to have a competitive playing field, but the playing field's got to be somewhat level if Canadian companies are going to be able to have a fair opportunity to compete. And it's true with, with NAV, as I said, Minister, they were great partners. They recognized that this was a big opportunity. They recognized this was a great opportunity to grow the Canadian economy. They saw Telesat putting its balance sheet on the line and investing billions of dollars. And they recognize that if we're going to be successful in this global market, where other countries are partnering with their domestic providers, that the government was going to have to partner with us too. And NAV did that with this large capacity agreement that we entered into to help bridge the digital divide in Canada, to help underwrite some of the investments that we were making in R&D. But that's exactly right. And, and at some point, we should talk about what other countries are doing and maybe what that means in terms of what Canada should think about doing. I'm pleased to hear this. As you both know, uh, PPF has uh, published uh, a number of studies and, and made recommendations uh, in our new North Star series and in a very good piece of work that was done on digital infrastructure that was published uh, a few months ago. And the point that you make, Nav, about... Um, how governments will use their procurement to promote Canadian industry has been 
has been a key theme, something we used to be pretty good at when we had Bell Northern uh, Labs that became Nortel and uh, in many other ways, but I think something we slackened off uh, on. So, you know, to see to see us getting back to that is, you know, it's it's crazy. As you said, the opposite of what you say is crazy for these Canadian companies to go out in the world and say, no, the Canadian government is not actually one of my customers. That's That cuts you off of the knees right away. Absolutely. And, you know, it, and the way Dan said it, uh, I think uh, he hit the nail on the head. Other countries are doing it. So why would we want to be Boy Scouts about this? You know, why would we not want to be strategic and level the playing field to enable our Canadian companies that actually have a global solution? Like this is something, this technology and this solution has global capabilities. If I were to ask what success looked like in terms of industrial policy, we always say it'd be nice to have 10 to 20 Shopify's. You want global champions here in Canada. That's what Telesat is. It's that story of we go back to the Nortel example that you talked about, or we we highlight BlackBerry. What are the next set of companies, global companies, that are going to succeed but are going to be here in Canada, employ people here, create uh, strengthen our innovation and tech ecosystem here? Uh, and that's where I think Telesat has a lot of potential. Ken, you mentioned uh, what others are doing in the world, and you know, Nav had said earlier that you know there's uh, uh, 90 companies now who are or 90 countries who are in space. Some, I guess, will be competitors. Some will be collaborators. Some are customers. How does that global world work? And you know, how much collaboration? How much competition is there? Well, there's a lot of competition. The stakes are high. I mean, there there is very much. At this moment in time, a new space race. There's a new space race. The I'd say the the big players are the U.S., the Chinese, the government of India, and the Europeans, who have always been also very strong in space, are, in my view, a little bit on the back foot right now and are working hard to figure out how they shore up what have always been very good industrial capabilities, but that are threatened right now by these other players that are co-investing with their domestic industries and are innovating at a very fast pace. And the tricky thing about space is just how strategic it is. And we haven't you know, spoken about all the national security implications of space, but, but the reality is these are dual-use technologies. They can do a lot to improve civil society, but there are national security dimensions too. And, you know, I mean, it was only two weeks ago that we witnessed the Russians blowing up a satellite in space and demonstrating their capabilities. And so this is a big area, if if you'll allow me, you know, just another moment, but what these other countries are seeing and why they're investing so much is they see the promise, the economic promise that space offers for their economies, and they see the national security dimensions. And if you look at what the U.S. has done recently and what the U.K. has done recently, they have created a national space council. They did this in the U.S. during the Trump administration, and Mike Pence was the chair of the National Space Council, and you had other cabinet members and private industry that participated on this. The Biden administration has followed right through. They've maintained the National Space Force. Kamala Harris is the chair of the National Space Council. They maintain the Space Force, which at the time was sort of something controversial 
that the Trump administration did, but the Biden administration has carried on. Boris Johnson is the chair of the UK Space Council, but countries all around the world are seeing the promise of space. They're establishing space councils and populating it with the most senior political leadership in their countries. Nav did a great thing when he introduced a Canadian space strategy. As Nav said, it had been neglected for quite some time. That was an important step. But given what's going on in the world, given the importance of space, given the promise of space, this is where Telesat, and I know others in, in the Canadian space industry, believe that, that this is the next step for the government of Canada. Establish a National Space Council and have it chaired and populated with the most senior members of government in order to ensure that Canada can take full advantage of these big opportunities that exist. And to build on what Dan said, and I agree, you know, this is a unique opportunity if you look at what's happening in the broader international arena when it comes to space, countries are stepping up and you're seeing it at the political level, as Dan mentioned. But as he said earlier on as well, the use of space and satellites and space-related technology has benefited governments enormously. You know, if you look at right now what's happening in Canada with the flooding, They need satellite imagery in real time to be able to rescue Canadians, right? So there's applications here that Canadians don't fully appreciate. And I recall speaking to my cabinet colleagues and saying, look, this is a whole government approach because it benefits, as Dan said, national security, the environment we talked about, our search and rescue initiatives, but but more importantly, also in the area of data. If you're looking at creating wealth, if you're looking at uh, creating economic value, data is such a critical component. There's so much data that's going to be generated by uh, satellites and and through the space economy. And so where's Canada when it comes to that? Like if you look at the S&P today, the top five companies, right, tech companies are data companies, right? And they represent 17.5%. So you know going forward as space evolves in these, you know, if it's Telesat or other companies, And the data that they collect, how to monetize that data and create wealth is going to be in the billions of dollars as well. And so Canada can, again, find opportunities there, but also create a global framework in dealing with data and data privacy as well. So there's just so many opportunities in this space, and that requires strong political leadership working closely with industry. And so that's why I do agree with Dan on creating these councils, because other countries are doing that. I'm so delighted we've had this conversation today because I don't think Canadians, and I just put myself forward as the tribune for 37 million of them here, understand the potential that lies here and understand that there is a new, an entirely new kind of space competition that's happening with with the kinds of uh, potentials uh, that you're talking about. And I don't think Telesat, uh, I know Telesat and have known it for many years back when it was in BCE. But I don't think I can appreciate Dan. I think you're coming to us today from the uh, headquarters of Telesat, which is in Ottawa, Canada. Yep, that's uh, correct. Right down the street from Parliament Hill. This is where we do all of our R&D. This is where we fly all of our satellites uh, spanning the globe. And this will be the epicenter of the launch of this new, very powerful, genuinely most state-of-the-art low-Earth orbit satellite constellation that anybody has under consideration right now. Okay, so I have I have one last quick question for each of you. 
And I recognize that the payloads, when these rockets go up uh, with telesite satellites, will be 16 satellites. Nonetheless, We've seen people wanting to get into space. We've even seen uh, William Shatner, a famous Canadian actor, recently uh, go into space. Either of you guys have a desire to be uh, on a rocket ship and go into space? Yeah, I'm afraid of heights, full disclosure. I just <laughs> want to put that out there. <laughs> so uh, I'll, I'll let William Shatner and others go. But like to your point, Ed, there's been 420 commercial flights in the last 33 years. 20% of them have occurred in the last 18 months. So over 80 flights. So if this is only going to pick up. There's going to be more and more opportunities. Maybe when I get older or dealing with my midlife crisis later on, I might consider it. And Dan, you didn't grow up wanting to uh, get up there with uh, the astronauts? I admire them and I have confidence in the technology. But, but for me, there's still so many places here on Earth that I want to explore. Um, I'll stick to that first. Okay, well, you're both down-to-earth guys. I appreciate that. <laughs> and uh, a great conversation Say Thank you so much for being on Policy Speaking. Thanks very Ed, much. Thank you. At this point in the podcast, we'd like to take a moment to highlight one of our Public Policy Forum members, one that has gone above and beyond the call of duty in terms of an ongoing contribution to a stronger and more resilient Canada. This week, we want to note how PPF proud we are of our member EY Canada for its EY Ripples program, which aims to positively impact the lives of 1 billion people by 2030. Through this program, EY has provided consulting services with Habitat Canada to help them build equity and increase accessibility to safe and stable housing through stakeholder consultations, collaborations, and an intensive review of their operations. As Julia Deems, President and CEO of Habitat for Humanity Canada stated, being able to tap into EY Canada's experience, network and intellectual horsepower through the Ripples program is a huge gift for Habitat and people living with low income who need safe and decent housing. So thank you EY Canada, who has been a um, proud and active member of uh, the Public Policy Forum for many years and indeed helped us with our strategy. So that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Share this episode with a friend. Leave us a review on the podcast platform of your choice. Be careful not to spread anything with the podcast, but please do spread the podcast. I want to thank my colleagues at the Public Policy Forum who make this podcast happen. I'm Edward Greenspan, and this has been Policy Speaking. Policy Speaking.